1: If you enjoyed this episode on influential thinker Sigmund Freud, you'll definitely want to check out our Historical Figures podcast. Every other Wednesday, we dig up what you don't know about the icons you do know. Follow Historical Figures free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I started my professional activity as a neurologist, trying to bring relief to my neurotic patients. Under the influence of an older friend and by my own efforts, I discovered some important new facts about the unconscious and psychic life, the role of instinctual urges, and so on. Out of these findings grew a new science, psychoanalysis, a part of psychology, and a new method of treatment of the neuroses. I had to pay heavily for this bit of good luck, People did not believe in my facts and thought my theories unsavory. Resistance was strong and unrelenting. In the end, I succeeded in acquiring pupils and building up an international psychoanalytic association. But the struggle is not yet over.
0: These were some of the final words uttered by the critically acclaimed psychologist Sigmund Freud.
1: Through his years, Freud published dozens of famous papers, stirred up controversy among experts in his field, and created the idea of psychoanalysis.
0: He was certainly prolific in the field of psychology, but what about the man himself? How did he get his start, and what did he do in between writing radical papers and treating patients? And whatever happened to him after he published his final work? Welcome to Historical Figures. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Every
1: Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them.
0: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we delve into the fascinating life of Sigmund Freud.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory. And while you're there, we'd really appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. Now, back to the life of Sigmund Freud.
0: Many know the famous psychologist as the proprietor of dream analysis and the originator of the famous, or infamous, Oedipus Complex.
1: But did you know that Freud was actually the founder of an entire international psychology movement?
0: Or that he battled not only fellow psychologists, but also an ailment derived from his own peculiar habits.
1: Or that he escaped persecution from the Nazis during the Holocaust.
0: In fact, the life of Sigmund Freud is a lot more colorful than psychology textbooks make it out to be.
1: And although his theories are often discredited in modern psychological discourse, there's no denying that Freud was a pioneer who opened up a global conversation about how psychology and medicine interact.
0: As well as writing about some of the most interesting, if not bizarre, psychological case studies of his time.
1: Oh, like that of the little boy whose fear of horses supposedly had sexual origins? Hmm,
0: but we'll get to that in good time.
1: Right, no no need to get ahead of
0: ourselves. Why don't we start at the beginning? The year was 1856. Sigmund Freud, or as he was called at his birth, Sigismund Freud, was born to religious Jewish parents, Jacob Freud and Emilia Freud, in the town of Freiburg in the Austrian Empire.
1: Though his parents wouldn't have ever guessed that their little Sigismund would grow up to become the psychologist with perhaps the highest level of name recognition globally, they knew their boy was different from the beginning.
0: That's right. Even Freud's birth was an anomaly.
1: He was born with a call, which literally means helmeted head in Latin.
0: In less poetic terms, a call is a thin layer of membrane that wraps around the baby, making them look as if they're in a tiny, translucent bubble.
1: It's a rare but perfectly harmless condition that occurs in less than 0.01% of births.
0: And to Freud's mother Amelia, a sign of good luck.
1: Whether by the magical powers of the call or by pure coincidence, young Freud was on the fast track to success.
0: He excelled in school. At age nine, he entered high school, where he was not only an ace student, but also an avid literature reader who absorbed and became proficient in eight languages during the course of his early education.
1: By 1873, Freud had graduated from high school with flying colors and was on his way to the University of Vienna, where he set out to study law. Law? Yep law. Freud, like many great thinkers who write about the human condition, such as Karl Marx or Mahatma Gandhi, started his journey with the intent of going to law school.
0: But I'm guessing that faded pretty fast.
1: Right you are. How long he stuck with that goal is unclear, but at some point he began working with the medical faculty, drastically changing his career trajectory and his role in the academic landscape. He first studied philosophy, physiology, and zoology under various professors at the medical school before entering the doctoral program. In
0: 1881, at age 25, Freud graduated with an M.D. from Vienna University. Within a year, Freud started his medical career at Vienna General Hospital.
1: He worked on many research projects at Vienna General.
0: One such study was on aphasia, which is the inability to comprehend and create language due to brain damage.
1: This study was particularly important for Freud in that the contents of that study led to his first book publication about 10 years later.
0: But how does this relate to psychology, you might be wondering? Well, one of Freud's professional escapades in the hospital was under a psychiatrist named Theodor Meinert.
1: Meinert worked in the psychiatric clinic in the hospital doing brain research.
0: Meinert's work on mental illness and brain composition piqued Freud's interest in clinical studies. This is often cited as the moment that locked Freud onto the path of psychological study and, eventually, global fame. In
1: 1885, Freud's success as a researcher earned him the position of docent, which was a fancy term for a university lecturer, at his alma mater, the University of Vienna.
0: Though he didn't teach classes or even get paid, he gave a series of lectures each Saturday evening at a lecture hall in the university's psychiatric clinic about whatever study he was currently working on.
1: The crowd was small but passionate, and Freud continued these lectures on his studies from the mid-1880s all the way through the early 1900s after he had become an established psychologist in his field.
0: But in 1885, 29-year-old Freud was merely beginning his journey.
1: In October of 1885, Freud embarked on a fellowship in Paris to study under the renowned Jean-Martin Charcot, a neurologist studying the curative effects of hypnosis.
0: At the time, the field of neurology was rapidly advancing. Advancements in microscopy allowed for the first depiction of a cell,
1: Following that, scientists discovered the shape of a brain, tested the effects of nerve stimulation, and by the early 1880s even performed the first surgeries to remove brain and spinal tumors.
0: In the 1880s, hypnotism was also gaining traction in the medical world. Charcot in particular believed that hypnotism could be used to cure hysteria or an excess outpouring of emotion.
1: Freud, who had spent much of his time in Vienna General Hospital working with Theodor Meinert in his psychiatric clinic, in addition to filling in occasionally at a local asylum in Vienna, was keenly interested in this new form of treatment.
0: As such, this became one of the primary factors that turned Freud away from a career in neurology and towards a career in medical psychopathology.
1: Whoa, that's a mouthful. Uh, you mind breaking that down a moment? Of
0: course. Psychopathology is the scientific study of mental disorders. It seeks to find the root genetic, biological, social, and psychological causes of the disorders, as well as discover treatments for them. Oh,
1: that's actually pretty straightforward.
0: To say, sure, but studying it? That was a whole other challenge, especially in the late 19th century.
1: The earliest ideas on what would become psychopathology came from the Greek philosopher Hippocrates in the to 400s BCE.
0: Hippocrates was among the first to suggest mental disorders were not caused by demonic possession, but instead resulted from diseases in the brain.
1: After that, there wasn't much prominent discourse on the subject until the 1700s when Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote about how economic pressures would cause a psychological transformation in both societies and individuals.
0: As a reminder, this was nearly two centuries before Freud began studying the subject.
1: It was also one of Freud's inspirations. He borrowed from Rousseau's ideas and philosophy to form a clinical method of approaching psychopathology.
0: But Freud couldn't do that with his job at the hospital taking up all his time. Upon returning from his fellowship in 1886, Freud left his job at Vienna General Hospital and set up his own private practice where he specialized in nervous disorders.
1: To be clear, a nervous disorder simply refers to a neurological disorder that stems from the nervous system, i.e., anything from paralysis and seizures to confusion and speech problems.
0: Freud combined his knowledge of medicine with his newfound interest in alternative treatment methods.
1: Like his mentor, Charcot, Freud used hypnosis as a method of treating his patients.
0: He put his patients in a trance to help them recall traumatic experiences they had forgotten about. Got your happy price, price line. And now back to the story. 1886 was a big year of changes for Sigmund Freud, and not just because of his new practice.
1: That's right. Not only was Freud's professional life flourishing, but so was his romantic one.
0: The same year that Freud opened up his clinic, when he was 30, he married his wife, Martha Bernays. They had six children Mathilde, Jean Martin, Oliver, Ernst, Sophie, and Anna.
1: Freud was especially close to his youngest daughter, Anna. She deeply admired her father and felt that she learned more from him than school. Anna would eventually follow in her father's footsteps and grow up to be a renowned psychologist just like her father.
0: Anna was a troubled child and frequently quarreled with her siblings. Freud believed young Anna was especially jealous of her pretty sister Sophie for diverting Freud's attention away from Anna herself. Anna frequently wrote to her father about her mental health struggles, and Freud attempted to treat her by having nightly analysis sessions six times a week over the course of four years, when Anna was in her mid-20s. He analyzed her dreams, emotions, relationships, and memories. The two even talked about her sexual fantasies and masturbation habits.
1: To an outsider, this could be seen as a strange practice. But for Freud and Anna, it was a strengthening of their relationship and an affirmation of their individual passion for psychology.
0: In 1887, about a year after establishing his clinic, Freud met a doctor that would become one of his closest friends and intellectual collaborators, as well as providing for a rather interesting side story in the life of Sigmund Freud.
1: Wilhelm Fleece was an ear, nose, and throat specialist who, like Freud, was a maverick when it came to medical theories.
0: Both were outside the mainstream medical bubble and had a keen interest in developing radical new theories on sexuality.
1: Both also believed in the importance of masturbation, the use of condoms, and coitus interruptus, which were not all widely accepted at the time.
0: While Freud was on track to developing theories on what would become psychoanalysis, Fleece was working on his own theories on human biorhythms, which analyzes the physical, emotional, and intellectual cycles of man that were bestowed by nature at the time of birth.
1: To many of today's psychologists, the theories are nothing more than pseudoscientific ramblings.
0: But to Freud, they were brilliant. In fact, Freud's
1: obsession with Fleece surpassed that of mere intellectual respect— He himself noted that he had a deep attachment to Fleece. But Fleece was not important to Freud, just as a friend whose intellect matched Freud's. Fleece's theories were also pivotal to the development of Freud's own theories on infantile sexuality and bisexuality.
0: In fact, Freud's first publication of the theory of the mind, Project for a Scientific Psychology, was developed in part through the many conversations Freud and Fleece had together on the subject.
1: The publication talks about a variety of subjects, including how neurons affect human survival drives, the psychological origin of hysteria in terms of psychopathology, and how people may repress certain sexual
0: memories. It became the foundation of Freud's future theories, and it wouldn't have been completed without Fleece.
1: Of course, all good things must come to an end, and for Freud and Fleece, it was a bitter parting.
0: And, in characteristic Freud fashion, the story behind their severed relationship was just as interesting as the relationship itself.
1: In the early 1890s, Freud referred one of his early psychoanalysis patients, Emma Eckstein, to Fleece to treat her painful and irregular menstruation.
0: Why did Freud refer a patient with menstruation problems to an ear, nose, and throat doctor, you may ask? Well, Fleece had an interesting theory.
1: He believed that the nose and genitals were connected. It was called the nasal genital theory.
0: And Freud, trusting Fleece wholeheartedly, sent Eckstein straight to Fleece's operating table. The surgery was a disaster. The
1: operation to remove the middle turbinate in her nose, which was supposed to help cure her painful menstruations, left Eckstein bleeding and permanently disfigured.
0: At first, Freud defended his dear friend, stating that Fleece was, completely
1: without blame. He backed up his statement by noting that Eckstein herself was culpable in the disfigurement, as her history of self-cutting, irregular nasal bleeding, and irregular menstrual bleeding were the primary factors in the surgery going
2: wrong.
0: In fact, Freud went as far as to state that Eckstein's new ailments were so-called wish bleedings. He noted in a letter,
2: As far as I know, she only bled out of longing. She has always been a bleeder, cutting herself, nosebleeds. She joyously welcomed her severe menstrual bleeding as proof that her illness was genuine. When she saw how affected I was by her first hemorrhage, she experienced this as the realization to be loved in her illness.
1: But that was just his public opinion. Freud himself knew exactly the disaster he and his dear friend Fleece had created.
2: In a letter to Fleece, Freud wrote, We had done her an injustice. She was not at all abnormal. Rather, a piece of iotaform gauze had gotten torn off as you were removing it and stayed in for 14 days, preventing healing. At the end, it tore off and provoked the bleeding. My intention to do best for this poor girl was insidiously thwarted and resulted in endangering her life. Freud clearly felt guilty over the ordeal.
0: Eckstein, however, was not about to let this tragedy tear her down.
2: When I returned to the room, she greeted me with the condescending remark, and I quote, so this is the strong sex.
1: Shockingly, the debacle didn't deter Eckstein, who after the botched surgery continued her psychological treatment with Freud, and even went on to practice psychoanalysis herself.
0: Fleece and Freud's relationship, however, was not so successful.
1: After the incident, Freud would admit that he may have overestimated Fleece's medical and theoretical prowess.
0: Ironically, though, this was not the incident that severed their relationship for good. It actually came to an end several years later in 1906 when Freud refused to endorse one of Fleece's new theories and Fleece claimed that Freud helped people plagiarize some of his work.
1: However, in the years following the mishap of Emma Eckstein, Freud matured, not only in relationships, but in medical practice.
0: In fact, Freud would grow increasingly selective with his friends as the years wore on, perhaps having learned a lesson from his work with Fleece. In
1: 1896, almost a decade after establishing his own practice, Freud began to move away from hypnosis as a method of treatment.
0: Instead, he came to the conclusion that his patients could be treated and cured by having them talking freely without censorship.
1: This method became what he called free association.
0: I feel like I might have read about that in my high school psychology textbook.
1: That's not a surprise. Free association, as Freud defined it, was a mental process where a word or image would spur another, often unrelated, word or image.
0: It was also around this time that he began to analyze his patients' dreams.
1: That's right. He looked at his patients' dreams as a way of showing how the unconscious mind worked, and he was particularly interested in repressed memories.
0: Ah, here's where the really interesting stuff starts to pick up. In 1896, when Freud was 40, his father passed away.
1: This induced in Freud a series of disturbing dreams, in addition to starting up his long-lasting bouts of depression.
0: Of course, in Freudian fashion, he did not let those emotions sit idle. Instead, he began to analyze both his childhood memories and his new dreams.
1: What he concluded was that he had an unaddressed hostility towards his father that resulted from his jealousy of the affection his mother gave to his now-deceased
0: father. If this sounds familiar, it's because this hostility towards his father and lust for his mother became the foundation of his infamous theory of the Oedipus complex.
1: The Oedipus complex was named for the Greek tragedy Oedipus, where a prince by the name of Oedipus accidentally fulfills a prophecy that said he would kill his father and marry his mother, bringing calamity in his wake.
0: Freud's Oedipus complex, though not as dramatic, takes its name from the idea that children inherently lust after their parent of the opposite sex and, as a result, hate the other parent for dominating all the attention.
1: Remember how I mentioned the little boy whose fear of horses held a sadistic sexual origin? How
0: could I forget?
1: In 1905, Max Groff, a friend of Sigmund Freud, informed Freud of his concern over what he felt was his son Herbert's unfounded fear in horses.
0: You see, Herbert, or Little Hans, as Freud referred to him in his writings, lived near a coach inn, where horses were passing through constantly.
1: It was common for accidents to occur, and Herbert even saw one of the horses collapse and die right in front of him. In modern psychology, it would be common to assume that Herbert's fear had something to do with witnessing the traumatic event of a horse's brutal death.
0: But of course, neither Freud nor Herbert's father, Max, believed that witnessing such a tragedy was the cause of Herbert's fear. Instead, Freud gave Max guidance on how to analyze and treat his son.
1: Max eventually concluded that his son had an Oedipus complex. The horse represented Max, in part because many horses had black muzzles like Max's mustache, and in part because horses were well endowed.
0: Freud, on the other hand, believed Herbert was experiencing anxiety because he was unhappy that his mother was about to give birth to his new little sister.
1: Freud assisted Max in treating what he believed were the boy's natural anxieties about childbirth.
0: Whether or not those treatments actually worked is unknown. But when Freud followed up with him at age 19, little Hans was a completely normal adult.
1: Herbert also didn't remember believing horses were scary in the first place.
0: By this time, Freud had completely abandoned hypnosis as a curative method and was all in on his new psychological treatment, which he now called psychoanalysis.
1: Another term from the psychology textbooks. He certainly coined a lot of terms, didn't he?
0: He certainly did. And for those who need a quick refresher, psychoanalysis is a method of diagnosing and treating mental disorders by investigating the relationship between the conscious and unconscious mind.
1: It relied heavily on Freud's theories of dream interpretation and free association.
0: As we mentioned before, it was also around the time of Freud's father's death that Freud began to invest more time into dream analysis. In
1: 1899, he published The Interpretation of Dreams, in which he analyzed existing dream theories in addition to interpreting the dreams of several of his patients.
0: Freud's theory basically said that all the thoughts and events of everyday life stayed in a person's mind, even if they couldn't actively remember those thoughts and events, which were then processed in the form of dreams.
1: He treated the dreams as wish fulfillments, or a means of satisfying a desire that could not be satisfied in real life.
0: Basically, he believed dreams were a window into the primal desires of man.
1: He also explained his theory of how the mind is organized.
0: In particular, he focused in on the division between the conscious and unconscious mind.
1: This eventually formed his famous id, ego, and superego theory.
0: Of course, the idea of the unconscious was not original to Freud. In fact, several psychologists in the 1890s had referred to the unconscious and subconscious in their works. And there was even a book published by philosopher Edward von Hartmann in 1869, long before Freud's ideas on psychoanalysis, entitled Philosophy of the Unconscious.
1: Regardless, Freud used the idea of the unconscious mind to dig up the root of his patients' problems. And to do that? He used dreams.
0: Freud analyzed everyone's dreams, including his own.
1: One famous instance of this was what Freud called Irma's injection.
0: In his dream, one of his patients, Irma, came up to him at a party. He noticed that she looked more sickly than normal. He scolded her for not listening to his diagnosis.
2: I said to her, if you've got pains, it's really your own fault. She replied, if only you knew what pains I've got in my throat and stomach. It's choking me.
0: He noticed that the root of the problem was that she was given an injection by another doctor.
2: I was directly aware, too, of the origin of the infection. Not long before, when she was feeling unwell, my friend Otto had given her an injection. Injections of that sort ought not to be made so thoughtlessly, and probably the syringe had not been clean.
0: Other doctors come up to him and Irma, all agreeing with Freud's supposition, she was responsible, he was not. When Freud awoke, he immediately analyzed the dream. He thought it to be a wish fulfillment, pulling from his deep desire to prove that he was not at fault for Irma's condition.
1: However, many psychologists have a different theory. They believe that Irma was merely a stand-in for a different patient that he felt guilty about. One from several years earlier, one that ended less than ideally.
0: Let me guess, Emma Eckstein?
1: Yep, Emma Eckstein. It's popular belief among experts in his field that Freud carried residual guilt from Eckstein's botched surgery around with him his whole life.
0: And if we were to psychoanalyze Freud as he did his patients, that seems pretty plausible.
1: As Freud's core theories began to take form, his publications were gaining traction in the world of science, People wanted to know more about, and perhaps collaborate with, this revolutionary psychologist.
0: In the fall of 1902, Freud began inviting a group of Viennese physicians to his apartment in Vienna for a weekly discussion on issues of psychology and neuropathology, which is the study of diseases in the nervous system tissue. This meeting was spurred by the suggestion of physician Wilhelm Steckel, who had successfully self-treated his own sexual problems after reading Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams.
1: The group met on Wednesday afternoons and thus was named the Wednesday Psychological Society.
0: Though seemingly insignificant, this marked the start of an international psychoanalytic movement.
1: By 1906, the Wednesday Psychological Society grew from 5 to 16 members and even hired a secretary.
0: The same year, Freud met psychologist Carl Jung, an acclaimed researcher in Word Association and a prolific psychologist who would go on to come up with many important psychological theories of his own.
1: Jung visited the Wednesday group and was inspired to create his own psychoanalytic group in his home city of Zurich.
0: Thus began the first of many offspring groups that increased Freud's global recognition.
1: Two years later, in 1908, the Wednesday Psychological Society was renamed the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society.
0: Around the same time, a neurologist by the name of Ernest Jones approached Freud with a suggestion.
1: He had read Freud's work and had begun to successfully implement Freud's methods in his own clinical work.
0: He believed that more people ought to be using Freud's techniques and proposed a meeting of Freud and his subscribers in a larger setting.
1: On April 27, 1908, Freud and about 40 of his early followers convened for what became known as the First International Psychoanalytic Congress.
0: They shared their case studies and talked about the field as a whole, but the most important result of the meeting was a collective interest in creating an international association for psychoanalysts.
1: But this alone was not enough to launch Freud into international success. One more event would become a key launching point for Freud's movement.
0: In 1909, about a year after the first International Psychoanalytic Congress, Freud was invited to Clark University to give five lectures in psychoanalysis.
1: He was awarded an honorary doctorate for his lectures, which became the first public recognition of his work and began to attract media
0: interest. It was also at these lectures that Freud met psychiatrist James Jackson Putnam, a Harvard University professor who took a keen interest in Freud's work.
1: Putnam invited Freud to a country retreat where they spent four days excitedly discussing psychoanalysis and its current place in treating illness which resulted in Putnam publicly endorsing Freud's work.
0: This represented a breakthrough for the psychoanalytic movement in the U.S. and eventually led to the creation of the American Psychoanalytic Association several years later in 1911.
1: Meanwhile, the official international psychoanalytic movement was starting to take form.
0: In 1910, the International Association of Psychoanalysts, or the IPA, was born. It sprung from the International Psychoanalytic Congress a few years earlier and established Carl Jung, the psychologist who had visited Freud's Wednesday group, and was inspired to create his own as the president of the association.
1: With Freud's approval, of course.
0: The IPA's goal was to promote and encourage the advancement of psychoanalysis as a profession.
1: The organization also strove to shield the public from untrained and quack psychologists by establishing standards for professional training in psychoanalysis, as well as creating a credential system for those who completed said training.
0: In addition, the IPA encouraged the foundation of a variety of new psychoanalysis-focused journals, including one called the YARBUK which Carl Jung himself edited.
1: The result of the IPA was a swelling of new training institutes, clinics, and a growing international network of psychoanalytic societies.
0: But of course, when a new body begins to gain power, there will always be an opposition waiting to strike.
1: And for Freud's gleaming new IPA, that resistance was faster and closer to home than expected.
0: In 1911, but a year after the official foundation of the IPA, psychologist Alfred Adler, a dear friend to Freud and the president of the Viennese Psychoanalytic Society, defected from the society after several vehement arguments between him and Freud on the topic of neurosis.
1: Adler believed that power dynamics were not solely rooted in sexuality and that gender and politics were as important in understanding the mind as the libido was. Freud, in opposition, was focused almost exclusively on sexuality and the libido as the primary force for neurosis and similar mental disorders.
0: Even after he left the society, Adler still retained an admiration for Freud that he carried with him through life. Regardless, Adler's departure from the society marked the beginning of an era of uncertainty for the field of psychoanalysis.
1: A year later, in 1912, Carl Jung, the president of the IPA itself, published a work entitled Psychology of the Unconscious, in which he contradicted Freud's theories.
0: Young even refused to call his theories part of psychoanalysis, instead using the term analytical psychology. Wow, it sounds so different. (laughs) It does seem a little petty. But in the midst of the swelling power of the IPA, it was important for psychologists who wanted to make their own mark on the field to find some way to differentiate themselves from the new movement.
1: As more psychologists began to turn away from Freud's theories, Freud's friend and colleague Ernest Jones came to Freud with a new suggestion.
0: And this time, it wasn't about expanding the psychoanalytic movement. It was about controlling it.
1: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
0: And now, let's continue our story. In 1912, Ernest Jones established a secret committee of devout Freud followers.
1: The intent was to protect the legacy of the psychoanalytic movement and ensure it didn't get broken down or tainted by defectors like Adler or Jung.
0: The committee consisted of seven psychologists, each of who pledged not to publicly depart from the core values of Freud's psychoanalytic theory before discussing it with the other members. The core values were those laid out in Freud's books over the years, including the ideas of repression, dream interpretation, the Oedipus Complex, and the inner workings of the unconscious. Almost all of these theories focused on sex and sexuality as primary forces of mental disorders and psychological motivation.
1: The group might have been a good idea, but Freud and Joan soon realized how silly the whole secret society was. Freud referred to it as having a boyish, perhaps romantic
0: element. Freud even made seal rings for each of the members, as if they were in some real secret society.
1: And, just like a boyish, romantic secret group, in Freud's words, the society did not make much in the way of actual progress.
0: In fact, what it instead accomplished was alienating several of its members, some of which departed with animosity from the secret society's inner politics within a few years.
1: The exclusivity of Freud's group pushed potential followers away and made those questioning their view on psychoanalysis break away to a less rigid system of thought.
0: Carl Jung was among the psychologists who felt that psychoanalysis was becoming increasingly isolating and turned away from the community altogether.
1: In fact, only two years later, in 1914, Jung resigned from his position both as the editor of the psychoanalytic journal Yarbook, as well as his position as the president of the IPA.
0: The same year, Jung's Zurich Society withdrew from the IPA.
1: Hurt by the pushback of fellow psychologists like Jung, Freud channeled his energy into a paper entitled The History of the Psychoanalytic Movement, in which he discussed the birth and evolution of the movement, in addition to addressing Jung's and Adler's withdrawal from it. During this time, in the 1910s, Freud was fighting several battles at once.
0: The first of which, the anti-psychoanalysis movement, Freud fought against with his own brand of logic.
2: Psychoanalysis is seeking to bring to conscious recognition the things in mental life which are repressed, and everyone who forms a judgment on it is himself a human being, who possesses similar repressions and may perhaps be maintaining them with difficulty. They are therefore bound to call up the same resistance in him as in our patients, and that resistance finds it easy to disguise itself as an intellectual rejection and to bring up arguments like those which we ward off and our patients by means of the fundamental rule of psychoanalysis.
0: That's a bit of a mental tongue twister, but if you boil it down, Freud basically psychoanalyzed those who were against psychoanalysis to determine that they were actually falling right into the common patterns of Freud's theories on repression.
1: Mm, interesting strategy.
0: It certainly was. He was prone to fighting battles with words and logic, and he rarely let people push him around.
1: His other battle, however, was a bit harder to defeat with reason.
0: Mm, you see, Freud was a heavy tobacco smoker.
1: And with heavy tobacco smoking comes a heavy health risk.
0: For Freud, this risk turned into an eventual diagnosis of oral cancer.
1: But why did Freud even start smoking in the first place? Well, You might think that it was the 19th and 20th century. People didn't know any better yet.
0: And that's true, they didn't. But Freud had a different reason for his habit, one that was characteristically Freud.
1: Back in the 19th century, in his early 20s, Freud was content smoking cigarettes and performing his studies.
0: But at age 24, Freud switched to smoking cigars.
1: He believed that if he did, he could exercise self-control and moderate his intake.
0: Unfortunately, he failed.
1: Unlimiting his smoking, perhaps. But what he did say about tobacco was that it, along with every other addiction, was a substitute for masturbation, which he referred to as
2: the one great habit. Leave it to Freud
0: to find a sex-based reason for everything.
1: Hasn't he ever heard of the phrase, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar?
0: Oddly enough, that quote is often attributed to Freud, even though there's no evidence he ever said that.
1: Well, if he did say it, it would certainly be ironic.
0: I'd say so, too, seeing as Freud was always keen on connecting everything to sex. Everything except his oral cancer, which was, quite simply, just cancer.
1: In February of 1923, Freud noticed that he had a leukoplakia in his mouth, which is a benign growth that often results from heavy smoking.
0: He kept this a secret for several months before confiding in his close friend, Ernest Jones, telling him only that he had the growth removed.
1: The story that unfolded in regards to the removal of his growth, however, paralleled a familiar tragedy in Freud's past.
0: When Freud first discovered the growth, he went to a dermatologist.
1: A dermatologist who lied, telling Freud the growth was not serious and telling him merely to stop smoking.
0: Afterwards, Freud turned to a doctor, Felix Deutsch, who immediately realized the growth was cancerous. But rather than telling Freud this straight out, used the euphemism, bad leukoplakia.
1: He encouraged Freud to have it removed, but did not make it clear to Freud how serious it really was. In that era, it was common for doctors to hide a diagnosis like cancer from their patients.
0: Freud, however, did take Deutsch's advice to have the growth removed and sought treatment from rhinologist Marcus Hayek.
1: Why he went to Hayek was mysterious, considering Freud had apparently previously questioned the rhinologist's competency in his field.
0: Nonetheless, Hayek performed the surgery.
1: And botched it.
0: Just like Emma Eckstein, Freud started bleeding during and after the operation, perhaps narrowly escaping death from bleeding out. And just like Eckstein, Freud's life did not end on the operating table. Again, he returned to his doctor, Deutsch, who realized further surgery would be necessary.
1: Yet Deutsch still refused to tell Freud he had cancer. He even made Freud's friends and fellow doctors promise not
0: to tell Freud about the cancer. That isn't to say that he wasn't aware there was some problem with his jaw. After all, he was in constant pain, and he even began to lose his ability to speak eloquently. He had a prosthetic device inserted in his mouth after several jaw surgeries.
1: But Freud's inability to speak clearly did not mar his ability to write and think. In fact, the same year Marcus Hayek performed jaw surgery on him, Freud published a paper featuring the concept that would become perhaps his most famous theory.
0: That is the theory of the id, ego, and superego.
1: If you remember, back in 1899, Freud published The Interpretation of Dreams, in which he suggested the existence of the unconscious.
0: Over the following years, he would shape this into a three-layer structure of mental organization, the conscious, the preconscious, and the unconscious.
1: The conscious mind consisted of thoughts that were currently on one's mind.
0: The pre-conscious was anything someone could conjure up from their memory banks.
1: And the unconscious, which Freud saw as the most significant of the three, was the part of the mind you couldn't see. It contained the primitive desires and impulses a person wasn't aware they had.
0: And it was also the lockbox for what Freud called
1: repressed memories. This theory of the unconscious and repression became the mainstay for Freud's clinical studies.
0: Through the years, Freud continued to develop his theory, eventually coming to a more concrete model of the mind. With the
1: publication of his paper entitled The Ego and the Id, Freud laid out three new
0: labels for the structure of the mind. At the top, where the conscious mind walked, was the superego, a.k.a. a person's morality. According to Freud,
1: the superego developed during childhood and allowed a person to develop moral standards. Essentially, it's where a person stores their socially acceptable learned manners.
0: Hanging out in the middle with the preconscious was the second layer, the ego, or reality.
1: The ego's job was to use the learned skills from the superego to safely satisfy the needs of the bottom layer, the id.
0: The id, or the instincts, was at the bottom, swimming in the depths where the unconscious mind slept.
1: In Latin, id literally means it.
0: Not to be confused with Pennywise the Clown, the id was the instinctual force that drove a person. It was the only personality, Freud believed, that was present in someone at birth.
1: Freud further broke down the id into two more parts – eros, which contained the libido or sexual drive, and thanatos, which, named for the Greek demon of death, contained the quote, death drive.
0: This is perhaps one of the more confusing of Freud's concepts to understand, but it basically coupled the animalistic survival skills that humans have with the drive to engage in risky acts that could lead to one's death. Freud said this was part of a human's innate desire to return to the inorganic state from whence they came. Talk about morbid. Well, Freud certainly wasn't one to shy away from more radical concepts.
1: But it was exactly that radical thinking that gave him so much critical acclaim. In fact, in 1930, Freud was awarded the Goethe Prize for his contributions to the field of psychology and German literary culture.
0: It was a prestigious award that matched nicely with his title of Professor Ordinarius, which he received a decade earlier in 1920, a title that he had longed for since his early days in university. Of course, with recognition also comes opposition.
1: And danger.
0: It was the 1930s, and World War II was on the horizon. In
1: 1933, the Nazis took control of Germany, which bordered Freud's home country of Austria.
0: In May of 1933, the Nazis kindled massive pyres, where they burned any book they believed to be un-German.
1: The Nazis were, of course, incredibly anti-Semitic, so Freud, a radical Jewish psychologist, was naturally among the authors whose works were set to flame.
0: The book burning was a public affair that drove home the idea of oppressive censorship
2: in the new regime. Freud, however, did not bat an eye. What progress we are making. He said, In the Middle Ages, they would have burned me. Now they are content with burning my books.
0: Though that was true in 1933, the following years saw far more devastating tragedies than the mere burning of books. Freud,
1: though, remained optimistic, and was determined to stay in his home city of Vienna, even after Nazi Germany violently took over Austria in 1938.
0: Thankfully, Freud's dear friend Ernest Jones had more sense than Freud in this matter.
1: On March 15, 1938, Jones, who was at the time the president of the IPA, flew into Vienna.
0: He was determined to knock some sense into Freud and get him to flee to Britain. Freud's children, Anna and Max, were also terrified of the Nazis, especially since Nazis considered Freud and his theories to be an anathema to their regime. They were convinced that Freud led some kind of Jewish conspiracy. When 500 Jews committed suicide after the Nazis were welcomed into Austria, Anna asked her father whether they shouldn't kill themselves too.
1: But Freud refused. Why should they kill themselves, especially since that was exactly what the Nazis wanted?
0: But Freud's children had no illusions of the horrors the Nazis might inflict on them. Seeking help, they approached Freud's current doctor a young man named Max Schur, who had promised to be honest with Freud, unlike Freud's past doctors who lied about his cancer. Anna and her brother convinced Dr. Schur to supply them with barbiturates so they could commit suicide rather than die in concentration camps.
1: But even with pressure from family and friends, Freud remained stubborn about leaving Vienna.
0: It wasn't until the Gestapo, the Nazi's secret police, detained and interrogated Freud's youngest daughter, Anna Freud, who was also a renowned psychologist, following her father's footsteps, did Freud change his mind. His beloved daughter had come very close to needing to use her vial of barbiturates, and Freud was not going to risk losing his family. He announced that they would flee the country.
1: Jones immediately jumped into action.
0: He used his personal connections to the Home Secretary of London, as well as his influence in various science circles, to get immigration permits for Freud and his family. He
1: even used his connections to put diplomatic pressure on Berlin and Vienna so Freud could get out of the country.
0: It wasn't just Jones that was rooting for Freud's escape, though. American diplomats and even Princess Marie Bonaparte, whose ancestor was Napoleon Bonaparte's disinherited brother, helped Freud and his family, and even his physician Max Schur's family, flee the country.
1: But even with all this help, Freud's escape was blocked by legal and financial negotiations with the Nazi authorities.
0: However, the Nazi commissar who was put in charge of Freud's assets, Anton Sauerwald, had attended the University of Vienna, Freud's alma mater, and was classmates with Professor Josef Herzig, who was coincidentally one of Freud's old friends.
1: Commissar Sauerwald had maintained a deep respect for Freud and his work, and as such turned a blind eye towards Freud's finances, and ignored orders to destroy
0: the library of books in the IPA offices. At this point, Princess Bonaparte took action. She was a wealthy French author and psychoanalyst, as well as one of Freud's followers.
1: After Sauerwald pushed papers through the Nazi offices, Princess Bonaparte personally traveled to Vienna to help Freud with the desperate financial situation by providing him with the necessary funds to depart the country. This allowed Sauerwald to sign the exit visas for Freud and the others.
0: On June 4, 1938, after months of struggling with the Nazi authorities, Freud, his family, and his physician's family left Vienna for London.
1: Freud did what many over those terrible years were unable to do. He successfully escaped the Holocaust.
0: But unfortunately for Freud, his luck was at its bitter end.
1: By the following summer, in September of 1939, Freud's jaw cancer had spread too far. It filled him with pain every day, but was no longer operable. His beloved dog wouldn't even go near him due to the terrible smell emanating from his rotting jawbone.
0: In mid-September 1939, Freud decided he wished to die.
1: After deciding he wished to die, Freud turned to the doctor who had accompanied him all the way from Europe and who had promised to always be honest with him, Max Schur. Freud said to him,
2: (coughs) Sure, you remember our contract not not to leave me in the lurch when the time has come. (coughs) Now it is nothing but torture and makes no sense.
0: His daughter Anna did not wish to see her father die so suddenly, and was initially resistant, but Schur convinced her that it was pointless to let him suffer.
1: Over the course of several days, Shore administered fatal doses of morphine.
0: Though there were other accounts of who actually administered the morphine, the record left behind by his doctor relayed the event in detail. He said, quote, When he was again in agony, I gave him a hypodermic of two centigrams of morphine. He soon felt relief and fell into a peaceful sleep. The expression of pain and suffering was gone. I repeated this dose after about 12 hours. Freud was obviously so close to the end of his reserves that he lapsed into a coma and did not wake up again.
1: On September 23rd, at the age of 81, Freud passed away.
0: Though Freud was dead, his legacy lived on.
1: Even today, his theories in psychoanalysis have become mainstays for critical psychological thought, as well as a point of comparison for new psychological
0: theories. Though most of his ideas are no longer considered valid by modern psychologists outside of the psychoanalytical realm, it is undeniable that Freud's works have become an inseparable part of psychological, literary, and even popular culture.
1: How many times have you heard an English professor talk about the Oedipus complex in a work of literature?
0: Or heard a snarky character in a television show say, don't psychoanalyze me.
1: Whether or not you believe in Freud's writing, one can't deny the profound effect that he's had not only on his field, but on society itself.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Historical Figures.
1: If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Historical Figures, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. A new episode drops every Wednesday, but if you subscribe,
0: you don't have to remember that. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I know. It seems simple,
1: but it really helps our show.
0: As always, we thank you for listening. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Jen enfield Kane and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. Our amazing voice actor is Steve Pinto.